มูทัสสะบุคควาทัวอรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควาทัวอรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควาทัวอรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนมัสสะสวัสดีทุกคนนี่เป็นกลุ่มคนที่ไม่ได้พบกันบ่อยๆแต่คุณเป็นผู้รับเชิญที่ดีที่สุดที่คุณมาจากที่นี่ขอบคุณที่คุณมาจากที่นี่ขอบคุณที่คุณมาจากที่นี่ขอบคุณที่คุณมาจากที่นี่ขอบคุณที่คุณมาจากที่นี่ขอบคุณที่คุณมาจากที่นี่ขอบคุณที่คุณมาจากที่นี่ขอบคุณที่คุณมาจากที่นี่ขอบคุณ The Buddha's teaching on no I or not self. Um, it's well. Besides, personally, I find it a very interesting subject. And uh, throughout all my life as a monk, I've always enjoyed contemplating the Buddha's teaching on anatta. Found it very uh, relevant and, and inspiring. But also, I think it's, uh, it's it seems to be very relevant. On a, a social level as well, I, I get a feeling that there's so much more me around, and there are, I think there, you know, there are consequences to to this. And now, of course, this is something. This is not just something in the the outside world. This is something that happens in the monastery as well. Uh, the people who come to train here, the Of course, the big challenge for anybody who wants to take up this life is to be able to let go of all their views and opinions about how things should be, because basically, here I'm the one who say how things should be, <laughs> and if you can't let go, well, then there's a problem <laughs> for you. <laughs> uh, it's not quite that dictatorial, but something like that is true. But also, it's a problem for me because, um, I mean, for instance, this evening. Uh, we're very happy to see Tom back again. We haven't seen Tom for uh, quite a few weeks. He had a little stroke, and that kind of somewhat wiped him out for a while. Um, but we're very pleased to see him back again, and and that's not just because he brings me a newspaper. Uh, I, I I do miss. I have missed the newspaper that came weekly. It would bring the Observer on Sundays, and I look forward to reading that. Here's Tom again coming in. Is there a chair for? For Tom, there is okay. But also, what happened tonight was that uh, when Tom arrived and left the newspaper over in the kitchen, um, it got gobbled up by I don't quite know who. But when it reached me, there was only about one tenth of it left, and I noticed that <laughs> my newspaper. Where's my you know, review section? Whatever, and I. Had a word with my attendant monk to go on, you know, see if he can find it, discover it, and I still—I think we got about a quarter of the newspaper back again. But it's always interesting these things happen. Um, it's only a small matter, of course. You know, my newspaper is not a big deal. It's not of world-shattering importance. It, it, it you know, it's uh, relevant for me. But there are also bigger issues, and we all know about these bigger issues of of me and mine, my opinions, my views. My memories, yeah, things that we're troubled by. I'm not troubled by your memories. 
I'm not even troubled by the past, actually. The past is dead. The past is gone. I mean, the past isn't, you know, the past is not even relevant. What's relevant is not even the memories. What's relevant is the fact that they're my memories. And that can be a problem. Or the future. The future's not even here. The future doesn't even exist. And the thoughts about the future is not a problem. They're just blips on the screen. But if they're my fantasies about the future, well, then there is an issue. So there's a lot of uh, identity comes from, well, our identity does come from these habits we have of attaching to me and mine. And, and so it's a very good practice to, to uh, cultivate this as a theme of reflection and to see in our daily life when it comes up. Earlier this week, I read a report somewhere that said that Newcastle Gateshead is the arts capital of Britain. I see people nodding. Everybody agrees, except for the people from Edinburgh, who lost out. And if there was anybody from London, they would have lost out. We beat London and Edinburgh, who were close behind us. And uh, I read this report and I thought, yeah, whippee, that's us. You know, we've got, um, we've got the Baltic, we've got that beautiful sage, and, and, and apparently there's, you know, per capita, there's second, we're the second top city in, uh, in Britain for theatres and the top for art students. That's us. That's our great city. And, uh, you know, on one level, a certain amount of pride is not a problem. But what is it that makes it into a problem? Like, you can't help but feel bad about the cricket, can you? The Australians, I mean, you know, if it was anybody else that beat the British, I wouldn't feel so bad. But, you know, it was, so there's something there, you know, it's New Zealand, it's... Well, it's not really New Zealand, is it? It's what is it? What's the problem? The problem is this attachment. The problem is this attachment to self. It's not even the self. Now, we can... If we read the Buddha's teachings and we can think, well, the Buddha taught anatta, no self. And we can get very busy trying to pretend we don't have a self because we thought the Buddha said we didn't have one. And you can get into very intense debates about it. There's a lot of philosophical debates go on about what the Buddha meant by anatta. Maybe I'll say something about that later on. There's some Interesting translations back in the earlier part of last century and some even translations going on now that um, basically mistranslations of, of what the Buddha said about self. I mean, some people will try and make out that the Buddha did promote a self, a higher self, a big self, and, and they'll, they'll point to things that the, that the Buddha said and say, well, this shows, like in the uh, Mahamangala Sutta, that many of you will know that we, we chant over and over again the discourse on great blessings, the second stanza. Atta samapiniticha, oneself rightly directed. Ah, there is a self. Atta, there it is in Pali. The Buddha said there's a self. Atta samapiniticha. Yeah. Oneself rightly directed. And there are many places where the Buddha used the word atta, self. But what he was talking about was. This is just conventional use of the language. This is just conventional speak. Now, if we're going to talk with each other, well, we need ways of addressing each other, you and me. And say, oh, but the Buddha said there's no self. How can it be you and me? 
Well, if you want to grasp that position, well, then you've got to become mute. You know, you've got to stop talking. So the Buddha did acknowledge that there is a conventional way of talking whereby self does exist. And he said things like that, oneself rightly directed. And we have to train yourself. You know, the Buddha says you've got to train yourself, rely on yourself. And, and this is the point that uh, needs to be understood, a very important point, that we're not denying the self or dismissing the self, but rather we're interested in this experience of self, me. If we get interested in it, we get not judgmental of it, not saying, oh, I shouldn't have such a big self, my self is too big, my ego is too big. A lot of Buddhists try not to have egos. I mean, spent years and years and years developing one of these sophisticated mechanisms. It's very important that we do develop one. If we don't, well, we're basically on medication. We're locked up. I mean, it's serious if you don't develop a functional sense of individuation. And, uh, so there is this conventional ego or self. And then, unfortunately, a lot of Buddhists try to dismiss it. Well, that's not the point. But rather, the point is to understand the reality of it. And not just conceptually understand it, but rather, is it possible for us to inhibit our opinions about ourself adequately so we get an equanimous perspective on it? So we can see ourselves, and then we can reflect on ourselves. And look at this self. This is very interesting. Like you want to listen to some talks by Ajahn Sumato, and he talks about himself as the most ridiculous thing going. Now, actually, as a person, he's not ridiculous. But when he looks at himself, his self, from his perspective, from where he's looking, actually, it looks ridiculous. Because he has this equanimity, he has this clarity, and, and that's, uh, I can recommend you do listen to his talks for that reason. It could be inspiring to meet somebody who has this kind of clarity on themselves. Normally, we're so identified with ourselves, so attached with ourselves, that we're promoting it, or defending it, or denying it, or making a problem out of it somehow. But this is not what we're asked to do. What we're asked to do is to simply get interested in the experience of selfhood. How does it feel, for instance, when I take myself very seriously? Now, sometimes I don't take myself so seriously. Sometimes I'm a confident self. Sometimes I'm not a confident self. Sometimes I'm a lonely self. Sometimes I'm a comfortable self, a contented self. Any of these selves that appear... You know, some of them I'm more comfortable with than others. Yeah. And if it's a comfortable self there, you know, it feels okay and not too contracted, not too heavy, not too big a deal. And then somebody comes along and insults this self, it's not a big deal, really. Don't take myself too seriously. Maybe have a laugh with them about it. You know, big deal, being a self. However, if we do take ourselves very seriously, what's that experience? It hurts. You know, somebody insults or does something that offends this self, well then it impacts, ouch, it hurts, and then there's there's a reaction. So this is what I mean by getting interested in ourself, not trying to philosophize the self out of the picture, 
but rather see if we can develop our awareness in a whole body-mind way, because the self is a function of the body-mind, it's not just a mental process. Yeah. Whole body-mind, here and now, judgment-free way, so that we can we can inquire into say, what is the nature of this self? Now, this is what the Buddha was encouraging, not just whether it exists or not, because as far as we're concerned, conventionally speaking, it does exist. Yeah. If somebody tells you there's no self, you want to just step on their toes. You know, just see what happens. You kind of just... Dum. Well, don't get, you know, stand out of the way because that self might just thump you. If there's really no self, there'd be no problem. But there actually is a self, conventionally speaking, for most people, a very thick, dense self. And so, as I understand the Buddha's teaching, he was asking us not just to have an opinion about the self, but rather to get interested in it, to inquire into it, until we can transform the self, until we just lighten up a little bit. Lighten up so we don't become, we're not so... We're not so dense, we're not so thick. Because when we're not so dense, we're not so intense, then things come to us, you know, somebody praises us and don't get so puffed up. Somebody insults us, it doesn't hurt so much. <clears throat> somebody rejects us, it's not the end of the world. The problem comes not with the way people treat us or the situation we live in, Surely, because there's no control over that. Then the Buddha was subjected to praise and blame and all the rest of it. What makes a difference is how we perceive the self, how we experience the self. If we're practicing rightly, well then our experience is this sense of increased transparency. Where the experience comes to us and it's like it passes through us. It doesn't impact on us. On Christmas Day, I went for a walk down the lane, banged into some of the neighbours. Well, didn't bang into them, I met them. They were out walking their dog. And uh, they asked us and said, Oh, are you having any visitors this year? I said, Are we having any visitors? I mean, well, I don't know how many visitors we had, but we had a lot. On Christmas Day, I remember we had, I counted 14 different nationalities here on Christmas Day. And yet, as far as the neighbours were concerned, there was nobody here. Congratulations. Whoever the guests were, they're practicing properly. This is the effect, as far as I'm concerned, is if we practice properly, we don't, we don't leave our mark on the world. We're not, we're, not, we're, not a, we're not a problem on the planet. You know, there's a lot of talk around these days about, um, about your carbon footprint. You know, every, every political party is is trying to be greener than the other at the moment and, and, and they're all talking about their carbon footprint. Now, it's, it's very important and I think uh, recycling is great and we've got our recycle bins out there and we try to set a good example and, and I give talks about not using plastic bags and if you do use them, then use them over and over again and there's definitely a place for this. But I'm not convinced that any amount of, of, of carbon emission training or or recycling is really going to solve the planet. Uh, sorry, save the planet, uh, solve the, the problem. Uh, I think really <coughs> these issues that people are struggling with are really just the symptoms. I mean, the cause, the cause is, I think of it as not just like the size of your carbon footprint, 
but it's also the weight. You know, it's the weight of the one who's making the imprint. That that we can we can if we train ourselves properly, we can we can learn to to touch the world lightly. We can learn to walk lightly. And I think if, if we make this the priority, if we learn to become less heavy, less dense, then these other issues about you know, ecological problems, they'll solve themselves. Now, I'm not saying we, we shouldn't pay attention to them. We should pay attention to them. But I don't think, I'm not convinced that any amount of attention to that level is really going to change things. Because I think that's, that's just the result of heavy individuals, yeah. dense individuals. We go round, we get round on the planet taking ourselves far too seriously. And our impact on the planet is very painful. So, and I think this is uh, one of the um, main, this is one of the uh, things that the Buddha highlighted in his teaching was he didn't talk so much about ecological problems because there weren't ecological problems in his day. But I'm sure he would if he was around now. But he would be pointing to not just the politics or the economics, but to how we perceive ourselves, how we feel about ourselves, how we understand ourselves, how we understand the nature of self. And I don't think the training would be any different. I think you'd still give the teachings and the training is just the same. And there are recorded in the scriptures lots of uh, teachings that, that pertain directly to this. How to, what can we actually do about ourselves? What can we actually do about ourselves that's going to make a difference? There's um, one sutta where the Buddha and a whole lot of monks turned up at a village. The village was called Sala and a Brahmanical village. And uh, the local intellectuals, the local Brahmins, gathered round to ask this great holy man, the Buddha, um, some difficult questions. They were, they were very discerning fellows and uh, they wanted to know his answers to the problems. And one of the problems as they perceived it was, uh, well, they perceived it as what happened when you died. How come some people went to a beautiful heavenly realm and how come some people went to an ugly, horrible hell realm? And I asked the Buddha, uh, you know, what, what you could do about this? Well, personally, I think the, the way the question was, was, was asked and how the Buddha approached it, which was with reference to the idea of actually being realms of existence, heavenly realms and hell realms that are beautiful or ugly accordingly, I personally take this quite literally and I think that's how it is. But I still think that also the same principle holds true for not just so-called heavenly or hell realms that exist in a different time and a different place, but also exist now, here. That what the Buddha said on this occasion about how to get born into a heavenly realm it also applies to how to create a heavenly realm. What you do determines the world you abide in. How we act determines the world we abide in, whether it's a beautiful world or whether it's an ugly world. And what did he say? Well, there's a very famous, well-known teaching, the discourse that he gave, and the sutta was about the ten wholesome 
acts or ways of, of conducting oneself that are called with Dhamma. And I'm sure any of us, or all the Buddhists here, will have heard of these. And, but I think these are things really worth pondering on. If we want to know how we can affect the planet in a skillful way, well, these are things we really need to think about. And so what are these things? The first one, very important one, the first thing is that if you want to get born in a heavenly realm, if you want to create a beautiful world, what you do is you refrain from killing. Now, I mean, you can imagine what the planet would be like if people stopped killing. Yeah. Now, you could argue and just say, well, you know, that's idealistic. People are not going to stop killing. You say, well, okay, maybe they're not going to stop killing, but that doesn't stop us from understanding the principle. Yeah. The principle the Buddha articulated is very, very clear. He said there is no justification for killing. It doesn't matter who or what you're killing. Yeah. Or why you're killing? There's no justification. Well, the one exception, as I, I've talked about before, the one exception. He said, you, "There's one thing you can kill, and that's your anger. That's the only thing that he, he said he was justified killing. Anything else is not appropriate. If you do, well, then there will be negative consequences. And stealing. Yeah. So these are the, the first three things are to do with bodily actions: yeah. refraining from killing, refraining from stealing. That is taking things that you don't have rights over." and refraining from sexual misconduct. And, and again, the Buddha was very clear about sexual misconduct, that you know, what's inappropriate, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, that if, if somebody is protected, somebody is in a committed relationship, that somebody is underage, these are things that are inappropriate. Uh, sexual relations with such people are inappropriate. And now the, these are not just moral injunctions, but rather that if we... If we consider these principles seriously for ourselves and take them seriously, well, that affects our behavior. This affects the way we relate to the world. It also affects the way we think about things. And then the, uh, the next four actions he talked about are actions of speech. So if you want to create a beautiful world, or if you want to get reborn in a beautiful place when you die, then it is refraining from false speech. Somebody was telling me the other day that, they'd done, that a survey had been done and I think it was uh, three out of four or four out of five, something like that, people in England now acknowledge that they tell at least one white lie a day and that it's okay. And there are consequences to that. I, I personally think it's really regrettable. It's, it's one of the things that's uh, it's enhanced by technology, that with mobile phones and emails, it's the speed, we're not so careful about things. And so one of the things is that people will say they're going to do something when they've got no intention of doing it. And that's, uh, that's regrettable. Uh, people often, I'm, I'm going to come and see you or I'll, I'll get in touch with you tomorrow. They've got absolutely no intention of getting in touch with you tomorrow. And little by little, if we compromise these things, little by little, the feeling that, that creeps in, whether it's, whether it's something gross or something subtle, is a slow escalation of a feeling of distrust. That if we know that, just the same as if we know somebody else is lying, we don't trust them, then if we know that we ourselves are lying, then we don't trust ourselves. And this happens uh, with false speech and also harsh speech. The second thing the Buddha said 
with regards to the uh, refraining from actions of speech that harsh speech can become very much a habit. You, you watch a bit of television, you read the newspapers, and there's a certain sort of way of speaking that, that is really hurtful. And we can easily get around thinking, well, it's okay. Well, from the Buddhist perspective on reality, it's not okay. What it's going to do, well, it's okay if you want to actually create an ugly world. But if we want to live in a beautiful world, well, then we are the ones that are creating it. So something we can do about it is to really make an effort to refrain from it. Now, this is, again, it's not getting judgmental and heavy on ourselves and saying, oh, I, you know, I've got really bad speech, I'm a really bad Buddhist. And, uh, but rather to get interested in it. Like, if you say something that's hurtful, then afterwards, just to really reflect on it. Oh, right. Do I really want to talk like that? You see, the pain that comes, for instance, with remorse from having said something unpleasant or unkind or deceitful, or the other two, there's also tail-bearing, malicious tail-bearing, kind of passing on nasty things about other people, or pointless speech, pointless gossip, just waffling on. If we make mistakes in these areas, these four kinds of uh, inappropriate speech, it, the pain that comes, the impulse it has that we have is just to say, well, you know, just distract ourselves from it, just judge ourselves, kind of slap a heavy opinion on ourselves, say, oh, I shouldn't have done that, I'm hopeless, and, and I think I'm going to have a cup of tea, or, um, or eat something, or, or do something, I'm going to check my email, or whatever. Well, from a uh, practice perspective, what the Buddha said you can really do to make a difference is to stop and really pay attention, really feel what it feels like to have just contributed to creating an ugly world. And if we do that, from a place of awareness, not from a place of judgment, but from a place of feeling awareness, if we do that, well then, something deep within us learns. Something deep within us. Actually, I really don't want to do that. And that makes a difference. That, what that does is it creates, it conditions in a skillful way, mindfulness arising sooner next time. And when we know that we really don't want to speak harshly or speak falsely or, or speak in tail-bearing ways or or speak in pointless, frivolous ways, when we really know this is the case, we really don't want to do this, this desire helps us, this supports us, and supports others. And then the last three, uh, so there's the first three were actions of body, the next four are actions of speech, and then the next three, ten uh, actions that the Buddha said we should pay attention to, are actions of mind. And the first one is covetousness. That's a kind of one of those funny words that, that the Victorians used to use and, and we don't really talk about very much, but I don't know another kind of more up-to-date word for it. <laughs> but So if we could just feel for the principle behind it, the spirit behind it, and like covetousness. I mean, <laughs> I think the fact is that it's so common that we, you know, we just don't even have a, <laughs> we don't even think about it. We don't have a word for it anymore. <laughs> Nobody uses the word covetousness. When was the last time you heard the word somebody say covetousness? You know, Sunday school, you know, 45 years ago. Mrs. McGregor. 
<laughs> you naughty boy. <laughs> but, uh, you know, which is <laughs> it's a kind of superficial way of dealing with these things. Um, unfortunate, because the principle is very important. You know, if we are entertaining lustful longing, that sticky kind of, I want what you've got. Yeah. Well, the Buddha said, this is really unhelpful. This creates an ugly world. Yeah. This, this is not, it's not beautiful what Windows and Macintosh do to each other. <laughs> to use a very mundane example. Yeah. What is beautiful is what Newcastle and Gateshead are doing with each other. They're cooperating now. They've become the arts capital of Britain. Now, isn't that beautiful? Gateshead and Newcastle used to always be at each other's throats. Now, I actually don't know how true that is, what I just said, but it's a nice idea. Cooperation is a beautiful thing. Covetousness, where you just somebody's got something better than you and you're just lusting after it or resenting them having it. What does that feel like? What does that do? Is that helpful? Does that help create a beautiful world? Well, the Buddha was very clear about it. He said, you know, it's basically you, <laughs> you're going down. <laughs> no, he wasn't subtle at all about it. He says, if you want to know how you, you know, to guarantee yourself an express ticket to the, to the deprived uh, places of deprivation, the word that translates as places of deprivation, and that's what our world is turning into, deprived of water, deprived of air. Deprived of well-being. You know, we're creating it. How are we creating it? It's not the political or economical structures that are creating it. It's the mind states that give motivation to the actions of body, speech, and mind. That's what creates it. So the second of the uh, three mind states is ill will. So covetousness, ill will, and wrong views. These are the three mental actions of the words that we need to be aware of because when we follow these actions, when we perform these actions, we create a world, we create a realm. Uh, and I don't think it's just one that we create for ourselves to die into, it's we create the world we live in. Ill will, like covetousness, it's, um, it's a mental process that's just so, so there all the time that we think it's normal. Just having arguments, for instance, you get somebody. Somebody is um, no. Somebody's not pulling their weight. You know, you live, like this happens in a community quite a bit. You live in a community, and we got rotors for everything. No, we haven't actually. I'm exaggerating. We got enough rotors. Uh, I'm not very keen on rotors. I think they kind of make people irresponsible. The best thing to do in community is just to be mindful, be aware, be sensitive, and pay attention to what needs to be done, and then uh, volunteering to do it. But some things like dishes, well, they're just so awful and boring. And that, you know, once you've had a meal, you just want to go and have a rest, don't you? You don't want to have to do the dishes. Or you want to go and read the newspaper or something. But somebody's got to do the dishes. And so it's understandable. I think it's forgivable. We have a rotor for doing the dishes. But when somebody's not pulling their weight, you know, they don't turn up for doing the dishes, and you're busy doing the dishes, and you're doing their share of the dishes, how do you feel? Well, I don't have to say any more, do I? <laughs> but the thing is, what is worth saying is that how do you feel about how you feel? Because what's regrettable is that we, we tend to very easily justify how we feel. And we feel it's okay to resent this person or to get angry at them or get bitter. And, or we even feel it's okay to uh, say nasty things. 
out of our will. Yeah. People in the community that we live in, people in the family, you know, your partner comes home and grumpy and doesn't say anything appreciative to you, doesn't say anything nice, doesn't bring you a present, forgets it's your birthday, forgets it's the wedding anniversary, whatever, and you get upset and feel justified at throwing something at him or her, as the case may be. Probably, hopefully, it's just something verbal. I mean, I don't expect anybody here would throw a vase or a frying pan, but whatever. We, <laughs> I mean, we can throw energy, can't we? I can. <laughs> and I know other people who can as well. You know, I pick it up. You know. And this is ill will. When we throw our ill will around, we spit it around, feeling justified. Well, what we're doing, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how justified we feel we are. The reality is we're creating a hell realm, a place of deprivation, a de deprived place, a place that's not fit for living in, not with well-being anyway. So, the, again, the thing is to be aware of it, no judgment. You know, we all know that being covetous or being angry is, is naughty, and you know, we all know that. So that's not the point. The point is just to get interested and say, you know, what can I do about this? Well, what we can do about it is to be so present at the time it's happening and we feel what it feels like. What does it feel like really? What does it really feel like to indulge in ill will? Now, if we're operating on a sufficiently coarse frequency, then, you know, basically we're not living in the human realm, we're living in the animal realm. And in the animal realm, just going and biting another animal's leg off feels good. Animals don't have any compunctions about going and snapping another dog's leg and there's no moral judgment about that because they don't have the faculties for reflecting. But human beings actually do have the faculties for empathizing. Now, some animals might. If Kath is here, I hasten to add that probably some dogs do have a capacity for empathy. <laughs> and I think also dolphins, apparently. And um, Anyway, but most animals don't have the same capacity for empathizing. They don't have the same level of intelligence that we do. And so they can't imagine the effect of their behavior on the animal, other, other animal. They just react. Well, likewise, if we just react, then we're not behaving like human beings. We're denying our humanity, saying, you killed my friend, so I'm going to kill you. That's an animal reaction. That's based on, you hurt me or mine, and so I can hurt you. There's no intelligence in that. But if we're operating on that level, well, then it's very difficult to see that. And so when you find something like that, what you want to do is to somehow, very subtly, whatever you have to do, get them to start meditating. It doesn't matter how you do it. So it's get them to start meditating so they get to see what their mind is really like. Well, you shouldn't lie to them, you know, really. <laughs> We're a little kind of elaborations, all right. You know, but, but not lying. But whatever you can do to somehow help people exercise that reflective intelligence that we have. People only do these things because they're not exercising their reflective intelligence. We only hurt somebody because we've forgotten that we're hurting ourselves when we do that. If the reflective intelligence is really functioning, then when there's ill will and you follow it, it hurts. It hurts to hurt somebody. 
And even if at the moment you can't really feel the pain, you know on some level that you're going to hurt later. So whether it's by body, speech or mind that we're following these unwholesome actions, if we're really mindful, really aware, we know for ourselves that by following it we're going to suffer. And that knowledge itself is what restrains us. So in the beginning, yes, we do need to trust the Buddha's teachings about these things and and uh, exercise some restraint for the sake of experiment, for the sake of investigation, but we will come to the point where we start to feel the reality for ourselves. And so it goes from being sila dhamma, or the dhamma of restraint, to dhamma dhamma, where dhamma protects us, where the truth protects us, the actuality. If we're aware and we're about to act on ill will, that awareness will teach us, don't do it. It's just the same as when a little kid hasn't learned yet that touching something hot burns, they'll just go and touch something hot. And so, you know, mommy and daddy take them along and put their little hand near it and, and they feel, ouch. And that feeling teaches them. Well, likewise, when there's here and now, judgment-free, body-mind, not just split off intellectualization, but whole body-mind awareness, present at the moment when there's ill will arising, ouch. And we don't want to do it. And so the third of the, the three uh, mental actions the Buddha was talking about that need to be refrained from if we want to create a beautiful world, and we don't want to be born in an ugly one, reborn in an ugly one, is the uh, right views, or refraining from following wrong views. The views and opinions that we have that we just stubbornly hang on to because they suit us. And one of the things that, one of the wrong views the Buddha pointed out of being very dangerous is the, um, the wrong view about the law of karma, that karma doesn't exist, that there is no objective moral reality, that basically it's up to what you want. You can just do what you like, really, and uh, it's what you make of it. Well, the Buddha was very clear about this. This is simply inaccurate. And uh, at the very least, the wise thing to do is to re- refrain from believing in our thoughts about, for instance, you know, denying the law of karma or rebirth for that matter, and, and just hold it with the uh, understanding, with the clear perspective that I don't know. That's the truth. The truth is I don't know about a lot of these things. And so straightening out our views is not just a matter of believing in the teacher, you know, grasping at something that the Buddha said and and then going and having a war against somebody who doesn't believe what the Buddha says, or an argument, and he certainly wasn't encouraging that. But listening to what the teacher says, and then holding it with respect, holding it lightly, and waiting for our own intuitive appreciation to emerge. And so, if we have a sense that this experience of denseness of me the pain that comes from taking ourselves so seriously, the pain that I experience and the consequences has on the planet, if we have an intuition that uh, this is true, well, then again, we really want to do these things. We'll pay attention to these. You like write these ten things up on the wall. And these are not just something to read once and forget about. You just write them up on the wall and, and look at them from time to time or have them as a screensaver on your computer or something. It, I'm serious, actually. You can have them as a screensaver. Write them in there. You know, just write them all in. You see, they kind of scroll across your screen or something. Because 
reflecting on these things regularly, something the Buddha encourages to over and over again reflect on these things. We might hear it put once, we might read about it once, and we might think that it's a good argument, we might agree with it, but then we can very easily forget about it. And uh, what we need to do, rather, is to train ourselves so as to remember it, and to remember it sooner. So reflecting on the, the theory of it, and then the real practice, of course, if we if we exercise ourselves in these ten ways and then we start to experience the feeling of self, increased self-respect, you know, we know, we know that we're not, we're, not, we're not making a heavy impact on the world. And when we know that for ourselves, and it's not an ego knowledge, it's not a me, I know, I'm promoting myself, I'm that one who doesn't make a big impact on the world. It's not that kind of knowledge, but it's a a quiet feeling of, oh yeah, I can trust myself. I'm not being hurtful, or I'm not being extravagant, or I'm not being unkind. That quiet, intuitive feeling appreciation translates into not taking ourselves so seriously. And then we simply don't get around being so needy. I mean, you know, all the gadgets that are around, I think they're great. Colin came yesterday and told me I was a gadget freak, and I reacted a little bit, because I don't think I'm a gadget freak, I just like gadgets. (laughs) (laughs) He he told me about this new gadget that he he bought for his wife. It's it's a a picture frame with a picture in it, but you can put your... your, um, your camera card in the back, and it just keeps changing the picture. Now, isn't that a neat gadget? I think that's such. A... Or you can plug it into a USB. It's got a USB socket in the back of the picture frame, and it just keeps cycling all these pictures, just kind of new pictures. Isn't that... I think that's a, a lovely thing. I, kind of, I like that sort of thing. But I don't really need one. Yeah, I like it, but I don't really need it. So, yeah, I might even want one. Actually, I don't want one. That's not. That wasn't a hint. But even if I did want one, if, if we don't take ourselves so seriously, we don't take our wants so seriously. It's, it's easy to just moralize, and say, oh, I shouldn't want this, I shouldn't want that. So sometimes you just can't stop yourself wanting things. I mean, you just walk around and there's so much impact on the senses. You want this, you want that. You can't stop yourself from wanting them. I always want to go to Corfu. I mean, I just every Sunday when Tom brings the magazine, you know, I read the paper and there it is, some beautiful island and I just want to go there straight away. But I don't have to go there now. You know, I've learned a little bit <laughs> after 30 years of renunciation. You know, I can want to go to Corfu without having to go. <laughs> and that's, that, that's, a, that's a minor issue again, but, you know, the, these, these things do make a difference. You know, you can get into arguments about wants, can't you? I mean, I, I went to a conference some years ago. Uh, Ajahn Sumedha took me to this Recon Trust conference, Scientists and Mystics. And uh, we, we were kind of, of the, the, obviously, not the scientist camp. And, um, and there were very impressive talks being given by world-renowned scientists and mystics flown in from California and very impressive, profoundly inspiring, I mean, riveting talks. These guys you know, hadn't just studied their stuff, but also they're very articulate. And it was, it was great. And then, very interesting, it came to lunchtime. And uh, we were sitting at the lunch opposite one of the, the most eminent scientists 
who had given one of the most impressive discourses. And we were sitting there, you know, being friendly and waiting for the spaghetti to arrive. And you could see the uh, the um, trolley lady, what is the, the, the lady bringing the trolley down with the plates of spaghetti on it. And she's coming down and she's serving people and we were just sitting there waiting. And, and then she came to our table, but there's two tables, there's us here and then them there. And she started serving this other table first. And the scientist, well, he, he wanted his now. Now, he didn't want to wait, and so he says, I'll have mine now. So he reaches up to the trolley and takes his. And she says, no, you don't. And she takes it back. And here they are having this tug of war over a plate of spaghetti. And, the, and this trolley lady and this eminent scientist kind of fighting over a plate of spaghetti. And I just imagine I was sitting there trying not to feel precious because <laughs> because we wouldn't do something like that. <laughs> not physically, anyway. <laughs> And besides, it was after 12 o'clock and we'd already eaten, so we didn't, we didn't need a plate of spaghetti. And this is not a put-down of scientists, because there's some wonderful scientists around. But I did notice at the time the difference between knowing how to talk about reality and having to know reality. We can sometimes attaching to our clever abstraction on the way things are, you know, that gets us into more trouble. So all the information we've got, even our behavior, even the things we do, are not going to save us or save the planet. And what the Buddha was pointing to was actually getting deep enough to see the process of just where and when this I is born, this me is born. And when he said he taught anatta, what he was doing was just to say, don't take it so seriously. As far as I'm concerned, there isn't an ultimate self. You know, <clears throat> these translators I was talking to before, I.B. Horner and Kumaraswamy, these, these people in the early part of last century, they, they really had a bee in their bonnets about, about self. And, and they, were, they were really trying to twist the things the Buddha said about self and to turn to be an, an ultimate self, a big self, a great self. And and so on and well they were mistranslations if you read further and look deeper and practice what the Buddha was saying he was encouraging us not to take a philosophical perspective about whether there was a self or not but rather to but just to inquire into the nature of the self and see where and when this feeling of contracted solidity serious meanness emerges because that's the point. In fact, that's the only point. That's the only point, the only time, the only place where we can undo it. You know, we can't do it reading a book. Well, it might happen while reading a book, but only if we're actually reading here as well. Yeah. Yeah, reading books have got their place. Listening to lectures have got their place. But ultimately, we've got to be listening here. Yeah. Yeah, we ultimately, the Buddha said, you don't go for refuge to any teacher. Yeah, we've got to go for refuge to ourselves. Yeah to listen to ourselves, be our own teachers, until we can see that we're doing it. We're, we're doing this self-creating, this self-making all the time through what? Not because we're bad, but just out of unawareness. We just don't even know what we're doing. And so when we start to realize it, actually we feel compassion for us. We don't get all heavy and, and say, oh, I'm hopeless and I'm bad. I'm such an egotistical. Look what I just said to... Poor Hiriko, 
my attendant monk. But we do make mistakes, and we do then, if if we're heedless, we make another mistake by grasping at me. You know, I'm faulty, I'm a failure. And we get off on it. Yeah. It can be so sweet, so delicious to get off on the feeling, oh, I'm terrible. I'm wicked. I'm such a wicked person. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. I'm bad, I'm worthless, hopeless. Well, we can feed on that, but that's actually poison. You know, that's a feeling. It's a false energy. And if we, but if we train ourselves, we give emphasis not to moral judgments, not to heedless reactions, but rather to here and now, judgment-free, body-mind awareness, that in the moment where there's about to be a me born, we're there sooner. We're there sooner, and we see it. And we see we don't have to be born. We don't have to become something. And that makes a difference. Yeah. Now, if we've had such an experience, you see that you actually got the authority, you got the choice whether to be born or not, whether to become something or not, whether to grasp or not. When we see that, that has a transforming effect on us. It's not an intellectual argument, but something shifts within us. And then what happens that when we get back into the world of activity of thinking, speaking, and, and acting again, then the chances are that our actions and our thoughts and our speech won't be so dense, won't be so heavy. We won't take ourselves so seriously. We have a different appreciation of the nature of the self. The self is not such a big deal, actually. You know, we, it feels like such a big deal and it gets hurt, offended and insulted and dismissed and unappreciated and all the rest of it. It can feel so world-shattering. But how many times have we all been through these experiences? And it, you know, it didn't kill us. It hurt, maybe, but then we got over it. You know. So if we really give emphasis to mindfulness, to awareness, and get to the point of being able to see this process and then start to get a feeling for there is a way where we can learn to let go of ourselves. Not dismiss ourselves, but actually let go of ourselves. And that's what this practice is about. That's what this place is about. And as far as I'm concerned, that's what everybody comes here for. I think it's a wonderful thing. I think, you know, on a new, night like this, New Year's Eve, we could all be off somewhere doing something, being somebody. But isn't it wonderful? Everybody came here to do nothing and be nobody. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful, I think that's a, a, I think that's a profoundly beautiful thing. That makes the world beautiful. People doing nothing, being nobody. And that's really, that's really significant. Now that's not ultimately what you want to do. I mean, you don't want to try and do nothing and be nobody all the time because, well, we wouldn't have breakfast. <laughs> and that would be a problem. You know, you mean, you've got to do something, you know. Radek's got to make the porridge. Yeah. But it's how we do things. If there's a big somebody doing the porridge... Or if there's a big somebody doing whatever we do, well, then we do it in a heavy way. And we leave a heavy imprint on the planet. And we're a heavy somebody, plodding around, leaving our mark on things, imprinting ourselves. And I think it's an absolutely amazing, it's a stunning thing that, that people want to be remembered when they die. I always find that quite shocking, really. You know, they're kind of wanting to be remembered when you die. 
Isn't it a lovely thought to just be forgotten about? You know, you die and you're it. That's gone. What a lovely possibility. But if we don't understand the nature of me and my personality, my thoughts, my feelings, my memories, and my experience, well, then, you know, maybe that is the case, that we want to be remembered because we think this is all there is. We think this self, this me, is, is what really matters. Well, thankfully, uh, the Buddha didn't dismiss it philosophically. He just said, as far as I'm concerned, there isn't an ultimate me. You know, there's this functional, conventional me, but it isn't the way it appears to be. Get interested in it. Look at it. Start to see through it. Behave in a way of body, speech, and mind so that it becomes more transparent, less heavy, until the mindfulness, the investigation, the interest leads us to a place where we do experience for ourselves the letting go. And we, then we, when we feel the shift in, in, in self-importance. It's not such a big deal. So as we uh, approach midnight, uh, this is the 31st of December, you know, let's ponder on the thought, you know, who's entering the new year? There doesn't have to be anybody entering the new year. I know in my own experience, when I did my very first meditation retreat back in Nimbin, Australia, northern New South Wales, the Woodstock of Australia, all the beautiful people, wonderful place, wonderful time, and I had a wonderful retreat there. It was one of the first, first really significant, really significant moments in my life. And this retreat, I remember on the third day, just doing what the teacher said, Sitting, walking, sitting, walking, boring practice, but just doing what I was told to do. And there I was, out on the road, walking up and down, focusing on the footsteps, until totally unexpectedly, this awareness arose that there's just awareness. And it was so peaceful. I think thinking must have stopped. Or whatever, something must have shifted. Because I didn't remember having that experience before. But what was more interesting was not just that, but what what happened next. First there was the perception. There's just awareness. But then there was the question, but who's aware? And then it became even more peaceful. And that actually is a, that's a, a really beautiful practice to to not ask that question from our head because that might just give you a headache, but rather to ask with a feeling, with a feeling, with an who's washing the dishes? You know, who doesn't want to wash the dishes? Who thinks he should be washing the dishes? Well, whatever we're doing, who's writing a letter? And what's really interesting, a really interesting question, who's asking these questions? That's my favourite question. So, thank you very much this evening for your attention.